This is a GRDC podcast. Rhizoctonia has been very evident in 2020 due to favourable seasonal conditions for this fungal disease. But the reality is, rhizo is always there. Hello, I'm Tony Crowley. Rhizoctonia will cause yield losses, especially where cereal crops have had a dry finish. But because this disease doesn't like warm, moist soils, those growers who've received late spring rains might not notice any impact. What this season does emphasise, however, is the need to monitor crops, as what might appear completely healthy above ground could be significantly impacted below ground. One of the country's leading authorities on rhizoctonia is Principal Scientist Soil Biology with the South Australian Research and Development Institute, Dr Alan McKay. I caught up with Alan recently on South Australia's York Peninsula. If you think there's rhizoctonia in the paddock, the the best thing to do now is to dig up some plants from the areas that are affected. Um, And what you'd be looking for is, um, well, obviously the classic bare patches. But more often than not now, the crops don't necessarily show bare patches. You're looking for uneven growth in the paddock. Um, and in some cases, the growth uh, doesn't actually have to um, be all that different. And particularly in wheat, the uneven growth can actually be fairly difficult to spot. If growers see a bare patch in a paddock uh, that they haven't seen um, in that same paddock before, what can go wrong? What might be the problem? Okay, so bare patches develop when rhizo um, infects the primary root system of the seedlings. And... Um, even when growers do all the right things, sow the crop early. If anything happens to check the growth rate of the seedling root systems, then rhizo can uh, infect that primary root system very early after establishment. And once the seedlings lost that primary root system, a bare patch will develop and the plants will really struggle to recover from that. So this year, for instance, although crops were sown early, we had a period of... um, severe frosts soon after followed by a dry period and those two factors slowed down the crop establishment uh, significantly made those crops vulnerable to rhizotonia so if there was rhizotonia in those paddocks growers were seeing patches in paddocks that they hadn't seen um, rhizotonia in for years now rhizotonia would have actually been there in the other years it's just not causing patches so if they weren't looking they wouldn't have realized they actually had a problem but um yeah bare patches basically occur when the seeding roots establishment slowed down and the rhizotonia then attacks it and it can be dry soil typically it's cold soils but dry soil compaction layers herbicide residues any factor that reduces the um slows that seedling root system developing quickly and getting the crop out of the ground and moving fast makes those seedlings vulnerable to rhizotonia. And different soil types too? Yeah, some soil types are particularly prone to rhizotonia and to the development of bare patches. Typically it's the sandy soils and those that dry out very quickly in the surface layer, top five centimetres. It's that dry soil layer, rhizotonia just really likes that. So non-wetting sands, for instance, and rhizotonia often go hand in hand. Uh, The calcareous sands, um, another one that rhizotonia just suits rhizotonia very well and 
even sowing early is no guarantee that you can avoid bare patches. So if you've previously had rhizoctonia, you should just go out and sample regardless of what the crop looks like? If you're in any way concerned that rhizoctonia might be affecting the crop, I'd suggest you go out and dig up plants, 10 to 15 plants, different locations, and wash them out carefully. And the giveaway sign at this time of the year is to look carefully at the crown roots, which are the roots that are growing near the surface. Um, if rhizoctonia is active in the paddock, they will be tipped about one to two centimetres from the plant. What about the primary roots? Uh, the primary roots may or may not be affected. If it's a dry spring, uh, the rhizotonia will be working its way down the profile. So once it's um, consumed the, the crown roots, if you look carefully, you'll find that the, the primary root system is also starting to disappear under the plant. When you're looking at those roots, you mentioned the crown roots might have the tipping, but what are you looking for uh, amongst the roots generally? Uh, well, spear tipping is the classic sign for rhizotonia, either on the primary roots or the, the crown roots. But before the spear tips develop, the rhizotonia um, works its way through the cortex, causes thickening and thinning of the roots, and then eventually it will work its way right through the root system, and that's what leads to the development of the spear tip. What's this actually doing to the to the uh, tillers and to the plant itself? Uh, well, this time of the year, if your root system's starting to disappear, it reduces the capacity of the crop to deal with hot winds and um, uh, moisture stress in general. If you happen to get uh, some good spring rain events, then having a healthy root system is very important to make to get that water and convert it into grain as quickly as possible. If you did get some rain during spring, what impact will that have on the um, activity of the rhizoctonia itself? It could actually reduce the uh, amount of rhizoctonia. Rhizoctonia actually doesn't like warm, moist soils, so it, other organisms can start to compete with it. Its favourite condition is dry soil, and particularly dry in that top couple of centimetres. But as the profile dries out as well, it will move down. It it has a competitive advantage over most other organisms. That it can keep growing when uh, the soil dries out, when most organisms stop. If you have discovered rhizoctonia in a paddock mid-season, what can be done? Okay, that's a good question. At the moment, we don't actually have any uh, strategies that have been validated. Uh, typically, growers will put uh, nitrogen on uh, in crop and there's no doubt that the crop has a, bo a boost to that. We're not sure of the economics of applying nitrogen to a crop that's got severe root disease. But if you've got a, a crop with a high biomass and the root systems are not in very good condition, then the thing you need to consider is what's the chance of that crop setting grain in a low moisture stress situation. If you think the chances of hot, dry conditions in spring are high, then you need to consider um, whether or not it's worth cutting that crop for hay rather than risking carrying it through to uh, produce grain. When it comes to sowing, um, any recommendations in particular that you would uh, stress? The time of sowing is really important. When the crop is growing well, establishes quickly in warm, moist soil, the rhizo doesn't tend to cause the crop much damage. Often the first signs of rhizotonia we see 
are when the soil temperatures drop to around 10 degrees. So the root growth slows right down and the rhizoctonia um, then actually starts to attack the crop. And typically at that time of the year, which is around midwinter, they will go for the crown roots and then from the crown roots they will work into the seminal roots later during the spring. You've been looking at um, liquid fungicides uh, and their application to uh, combat rhizoctonia. What are you finding with the research work that you have been doing? Uh, well, the research was done a few years ago in collaboration with CSIRO and the University of South Australia and um, Deep Herd in Western Australia. At that time, there was a lot of um, concern about the efficacy, I guess, of the fungicide treatments. Um, so we were looking at the use of seed treatments and how effective they were. At that time, we'd also become aware of the that the crown root infection was actually different to the seminal root infection. So we came up with a series of treatments built mainly around liquid streaming uh, to try and place fungicides away from the plant to protect those primary roots and also the crown roots. What we found was that the uh, the most effective treatments were liquid streaming uh, away from the seed. Um, it gave us the ability to increase the fungicide rate and by placing it away from the seed it helped to protect the crop from a post-seeding dry period. So for these fungicides, it doesn't matter which fungicide it is, um, it has to disperse into the soil profile that the roots are growing into. So if a fungicide, for instance, on the seed stays on the seed, then it's not protecting the, the root system. To protect the roots, it has to be washed off the seed and into the soil profile, and then the roots growing in that zone will pick up the fungicide and will be protected. By moving the fungicide further away from the plant, if you didn't get rain but two or three weeks after seeding, the primary roots would go down and hit that stream, which would have diffused a little bit in the soil, and once they hit that layer, uh, they were protected. The band above the seed was designed to protect the crown roots, and because the crown roots don't come out until later in the season, you've got probably six to eight weeks for that fungicide to disperse into the soil. Um, so by the time the crown roots come out, the fungicide is well dispersed and generally gives good protection of the crown roots. In both cases, if the root systems grow outside the fungicide zone, they're no longer protected. So the fungicides don't move to the end of the roots, they move up the root systems. And fungicide placed below the seed will tend to move up the root system to protect the roots above it, but they won't go up to the crown roots and out from the crown roots. So they'll, uh, you really need to place fungicide in two separate zones to do that. So if that is the case, why hasn't it been widely adopted, do you think? Well, we developed it as more of a proof of concept to show that it was necessary, that if you could do that, that you would get a yield response. And our trials confirmed that the, we got the biggest yield responses where we protected both the crown roots and the seminal roots. Um, most growers looked at the setup required and had 
decided, probably rightly so in most cases, that it was a very complicated thing to do and was going to slow down their seeding operation too much. So it hasn't really been received or taken up by very many growers. But there have been a couple of growers who have um, tried to make it work and we've had a number of reports back where people have satisfied that it has made a significant difference. With those people who have been doing it, have you uh, heard of any actual yield improvements, what the actual tonnage improvement has been? Um, we hear reports of up to a tonne per hectare. In our trials, I think the biggest yield response we saw was about 0 0.6, 0 0.7 tonne per hectare. So a tonne per hectare doesn't seem unreasonable. The, um, the other thing we found, though, is that the responses are quite variable between the seasons, and that was also a frustrating feature of the work. You could have a lot of damage to the roots, but depending on the season, you didn't necessarily see a yield response. The seasons where we got the biggest responses had, they were actually above average rainfall seasons, so they had high yield potential. Typically, that most of that rain fell in late winter, and then early spring, um, the soil, the, ten, the rainfall dropped off fairly quickly, and we tended to have higher temperatures and the crops were under stress. So in that situation, it was the crops that had the healthiest roots actually yielded the best and the difference between the treated and non-treated was substantial. So is there anything that uh, growers really can do at this stage of the season um, apart from think about what their strategy might be in the new season? Um, well, I guess for growers who... Um, are not set up for liquid streaming. If you know a paddock's got a high rise at tonia risk going into next year, it is worth considering growing a, a non-cereal. Um, it needs to be grass-free because it's the grasses that really drive the inoculum. When I say grasses, I mean cereals as well. Highest risk situation are cereal on cereal. Um, and their most affected crop is barley. So barley following wheat is in a particularly vulnerable phase of the rotation. If you can put a canola or a grain legume or a pulse grass-free pasture in next year, that will reduce the inoculum substantially. It won't totally get rid of it, but generally you'll get the inoculum level down low enough to get the next cereal crop established well. Um, by the end of that cereal crop, rhizos typically build up again particularly if the spring's been dry. Uh, so then you have to think about what you're going to do for the next cereal. In those situations, depending on your options, it's worth um, considering fungicides. They will help to protect the seedlings. Um, so the fungicides, I think, that we've found over the years, that the dual-banded liquid streaming was the best, single band below the seed, second best. Fungicide-coated fertilisers, probably next. Seed treatments on their own provide some protection. They're probably the ones most vulnerable to the... They need good follow-up rain after seeding to get the fungicide off the seed and into the root zone. But uh, different people have had... You have to really find the option that suits your operation. And if a grower wanted more information about Rise Octania, um, there are resources? Uh, there are resources for both the southern and western region and they can be obtained from the GRDC website. Alan, thanks for talking to us. Thank you.
Dr Alan McKay from SADI, a division of Primary Industries and Regions, South Australia. And you'll find links to Rhizoctonia fact sheets in this podcast show notes, which are online at the GRDC. I'm Tony Crowley, and you've been listening to a GRDC podcast. Podcast.